Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm your host, CEO Dan Mariash. Today, I'll be speaking with two guests from the European Union of Jewish Students, its Executive Director, Eitan Bergman, and its Policy Officer, Emily Bowman. Just one brief reminder before my discussion with Eitan and Emily, check out our series, Conversations with B'nai B'rith, and all of our interviews on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find discussions with diplomats, historians, Holocaust survivors, Middle East experts, even the first Jewish-American male astronaut in space. And get our latest content by subscribing to the B'nai B'rith YouTube channel and liking us on Facebook at B'nai B'rith International. The European Union of Jewish Students, or EUJS, was founded in 1978 in France. Now based in Brussels, EUJS, or UJS, is the pluralistic, inclusive, and nonpartisan umbrella organization for 36 national Jewish student member unions, representing an estimated 160,000 young Jews from across Europe. EUJS supports Jewish student unions throughout Europe and represents its members to European institutions, to the OSCE, and even the UN Human Rights Council. As part of its mission, EUJS aims for a vibrant and sustainable Jewish future in Europe, achieved by empowering Jewish youth to make a positive contribution to European society. We're delighted to be joined today by EUJS's Executive Director, Eitan Bergman, and Policy Officer, Emily Bowman, who will talk to us about young Jewish life in Europe, the perceptions and experiences of anti-Semitism on European college campuses, and how they engage with the European Union in its efforts to combat anti-Jewish hate and foster Jewish life. Emily and Eitan, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, if you could, start by telling us about the European Union of Jewish Students. What is it? What does it do? What are its aims and goals? And how did it come about? And put this, if you will, in a historical perspective for our audience, which might not be as familiar with your work. After all, EUJS was among the first pan-European organizations before the modern EU came into being. So have at it. Exactly. Thank you very much, Dan, uh, for this uh, very detailed introduction. So as you said, EUJS uh, is representing 36 uh, national student union in Europe. Uh, and that's the first interesting point, because um, many people would think that we represent only uh, Jewish student unions from EU countries, which is totally not the case, uh, because we are representing nine uh, extra countries, including uh, the UK, uh, but also Ukraine or Russia, which is uh, sometimes uh, giving us some challenges, especially recently. Uh, but we are still a community. And we are here to represent them, first of all, uh, towards the outside society. I would the outside society may be not the best word, but the non-Jewish uh, society uh, to defend uh, the Jewish values, but also uh, the rights of uh, youth. But we also represent them um, to the Jewish organizations and defend the rights of the young uh, European Jews. So EUGS, as you rightly said, then, um, was uh, founded before the European Union takes its forms, the, the form that it has today, and is still uh, today the only Jewish organization that has uh, explicit European policies. Uh, so policies that are not aimed to one single country or even 
EU member countries, but for all uh, uh, European countries. So what's important to say also is that UGS is a professional organization, but also an activistic organization. So throughout history, uh, UGS made some quite impressive actions. Uh, we were the first Jewish organization to go behind the Iron Curtains. Uh, we smuggled books over there. We also uh, disrupted the speech of Ahmadinejad in Durban and in Geneva in 2001 and 2009, which are uh, quite uh, impressive um, uh, acts. But also most recently, it's a form of uh, professionalization because we became partners of the European Commission. So basically the European Union through us is uh, making sure that uh, Jewish life in Europe would be ensured via different uh, types of programs. Uh, these programs uh, entails uh, what we call fostering Jewish life, bringing Jews together, exchanging about their communities because, uh, and I'm sure we will uh, get back to it later. Uh, the Jewish community in France is very different than the Jewish community in Latvia. So we bring them together, we exchange, we talk about our own challenges, which are also very different from one country to another. And um, we make sure that uh, Jewish communities are creating a Jewish community, a European Jewish community, um, in order to make sure basically that uh, we ensure Jewish future in Europe. We also bring to those uh, youngsters tools in order for them to be able to lead their own communities and to be the leaders of tomorrow, either going to the national Jewish umbrella organizations or any other organization uh, that will actually work for the interests uh, of the community. What's very important and interesting also is uh, how UGS is built. It's built around three main pillars. Uh, the first uh, is the board and the president. They are elected by the GA for a two years mandate. And the GA is composed by the Jewish Student Union. Uh, and so they have the legitimacy and they decide on the political lines and uh, political orientation of the organization. And on the other side, we have the office, uh, which is composed of uh, for, like office members, but and by the executive director, we have an office of 11 people coming from 10 different countries. Uh, and these people do not hold legitimacy. They are appointed by the president and the board in order to uh, make uh, the actions uh, into reality. So we operate in the broad, broader Europe. Uh, and this is also thanks to the third pillar, uh, which is uh, very important because these are the partners, uh, including the Brit International. Uh, the partners trust UGS to pursue its mission in order to make a Jewish future in Europe a reality. So throughout the history, we had very different partners, Jewish partners, obviously, but also, as I said before, non-Jewish partners like the European Union, we are also sitting at the OSCE. We are talking at the Human Rights Council three times a year. So it's quite, it's quite a broad, uh, broad uh, collection of parts. So EJS is the umbrella organization of 36 national Jewish student unions representing 160,000 
young Jews. Talk a little about these national unions. You said, you know, France and Latvia, uh, clearly in terms of size, are different. What challenges young people uh, today? Uh, what are they experiencing in different countries? What's the same across Europe? And what is different? And what do their Jewish experiences look like on the ground? So the challenges are very different, uh, even though we can imagine we have very common challenges or we are all at the same stage in life. Um, so I would say that this is the common denominator. Actually, many would think that anti-Semitism is uh, one challenge that everyone is sharing. However, um, some unions tell us that the level of anti-Semitism is very low in their countries. Um, so I would not go into this. But for most of them, yes, anti-Semitism is one of the challenges. But it's also very important to make um, to go deeper in the analysis because anti-Semitism in uh, Scandinavia is very different from the one in Spain. Uh, we can see three different types of anti-Semitism, uh, the old-fashioned extreme right anti-Semitism, the extreme left, which is mixed with anti-Zionism, that is oftentimes anti-Semitism, and then we have radical Islam, which uh, is another form. Uh, in some countries, the three different types are present. In some countries, it's more extreme right. Some countries, it's more extreme left. Some countries, it's uh, everything at the same time, and it's a balagan uh, But basically, they are facing those problems. Also, as I said in the introduction, there are very basic problems like having a Jewish life in smallest, smallest communities is very difficult compared to biggest communities. So let me take an example. If I want to keep the strictly kosher uh, way of life uh, in terms of food, it's much easier for me to find kosher food in the heart of Paris than it is in Lisbon. It's not impossible, but it's much more difficult. And th these are challenges that people are facing and that are very different from one country to another. Also, the level of conservativeness is different from one country to another, which means that when everyone comes together for Summer You, for example, which is one of our flagship programs, we have to make sure that everyone finds its own place in its communities. Some people would want to go to an Orthodox service. Some people would prefer to go to a woman-led service. So these are basically things that are different from one country to the, to the other and that we are trying at UGS to make sure that everyone has its own place within our communities. One of the common fights that I would say is uh, keep our union busy is the fight against extremism, especially extreme right, which is unfortunately uh, expanding in Europe, but also elsewhere. Um, so all our unions are very committed in this fight. And Unfortunately, I don't see us uh, winning this fight very soon. Let me ask you a question. It's a definitional question um, before we, we move on. Usually in the United States, we think of students, we think of student organizations on campus. Uh, we think of the four years. You, you enter when you're 18, you leave when you're 22. And then usually graduate students kind of find their own way to, to um, some kind of Jewish involvement or Jewish expression. 
Um, but it, it seems that in Europe, the the age range when we talk about students is broader. Um, uh, Emily, you, would, you want to comment about that? And who exactly is the group that you're working with? Yes, thank you, Dan, for that question. And I fully agree with your analysis. Um, university, it's not as, as you said, in the U.S., as it's not like they graduate high school, people immediately go to university. It's not really like that here in Europe. And I can talk more about Europe in general, I think, when I say this. Um, for example, I can say myself, I also took a gap year before I went to do my studies. Also, university is three years in most European countries, not four. Um, but EUJS is an organization that caters to everybody aged 18 to 30. And it's a broad age range, but it covers basically students. And these students, as you correctly said, some of them are 26, some of them are 27, some of them are 19. And it's also young professionals. Um, so we also deal with young Jewish professionals who we want to keep engaged. We want to keep them active within the bubble. Um, we want them to be active in their own life and to get out the message of our organization and their work also to broader audiences, which is not just tied to university settings. But the university setup is very different, I think, in Europe than it is in the U.S. I think in the U.S. it's very campus-focused. In many universities around the U.S., you know, there's the campus, that's the heart of the action. Whereas in Europe, many of these universities, like their buildings are spread out around the city. There's not really a one center where all the action happens. And as such, the forms of anti-Semitism, I think, on these campuses is also very different. I'm happy to get into that more if you would like. But the reality on the ground is very different due to this differentiation as well. From what you know, I mean, now, really, every day we find a story in the Jewish media um, about one campus or another. I mean, this is really now a daily occurrence uh, where... Um, University councils, uh, um, these um, groups that, that uh, are there uh, to, to lead students basically have become uh, the venue for so much anti-Zionist uh, activity. Uh, from what you know, do you, do you see a difference between that that you face in Europe and that which is faced by students here? I mean, here we have, you know, the BDS movement started to grow, but now it's much more than that. Um, it relates here, for example, to freedom of speech issues, uh, trying to close down, um, you know, those uh, students who are doing advocacy for Israel or who just feel good about Israel from speaking out. Do you, do you know of a difference or do you see a difference or have you heard about it? 100% there is a difference. And as you correctly pointed out, I think in the U.S. under the banner of free speech, in a way, anything goes. And right, if anybody feels that their right to free speech is a bit infringed or it's being stepped on, they can cry free speech and then they get the space to spew lies, also to openly boycott, divest and sanction, call for these against Israel, to attack Jewish students because it's free speech, it's free speech, which is actually not. There's a limit to free speech, but that's a different argument. Whereas in Europe, I can also speak from my experience, I studied at the University of Amsterdam where the university really strictly told us that we can't really bring politics onto the campus. We wanted to do more positive views on Israel and also spread some, the truth. <laughs> um, and they basically told us no, um, which is very different. You wouldn't get that in the US. But in a way, somehow we still saw some BDS posters on the campus. So, you know, it's not really black and white, but I think it's more 
don't get me wrong, it's also on campus, but it's also on the front and the sides of these campuses in Europe. Um, it's outside organizations that try to attract the students and then they kind of, you know, have these meetings off campus. Whereas in the U.S., there is a breeding ground for these. So it is different. Eitan, let me ask you, um, we're talking about Europe. We're talking about the, the, the place where the, the most horrific, horrendous acts against the Jewish people took place. Six million Jews killed. It took a long time for community life to regenerate uh, in Europe, um, in some places uh, where um, I would I would I'm imagining here, but I'm, I'm sure about it um, in a place like Poland or uh, which which had a, a, the largest Jewish population um, after the war. It, it was really left with very little and then it became even smaller. And yet Jewish life has regenerate. I mean, the, the, the existence of your organization is, is, is the best example of that. Um, when you deal with EU political actors and various EU institutions, are they receptive to hearing about and discussing the issue of anti-Semitism? Because Europe today is the scene of, of so much of it. We have it here, of course, in the United States. We've talked about that. But are they receptive to sitting down with you and having that discussion? So that's actually uh, a very interesting uh, question to go into, and we could actually talk very long about it. Uh, for me, the, uh, the question is not about um, are they receptive or not, because uh, even though we see um, that extreme right is uh, getting more and more space in the political uh, uh, discussion, it is very not fashionable. Uh, not to care about anti-Semitism. So from uh, all the parties, even extreme right, extreme left, most of the uh, political leaders, uh, whether national or European, would say that anti-Semitism is a shame. Uh, but the question is, what does that? What does it mean? Because you know, we have receptive and receptive. Uh, my level of analysis is much more into the the implementation. Meaning, okay, you are receptive, this is one, one thing, but what are you doing in order to fight anti-Semitism? What are you doing in order to preserve what's left of Jewish life of, or what's left of, of what is basically the regenerations of uh, Jewish life? And at this level, we can see very big differences. So if we take, for example, uh, Germany or Austria most recently, we see that, first of all, they are receptive. But the government and the authorities are actually acting on the ground to make sure that uh, the Jews will be protected. Like Austria was much happened much later than Germany. Um, in Belgium, where I'm from, the government says that anti-Semitism is very bad, and they say that they do things, but in reality, nothing is done. Um, they just want to tick the box. Uh, we are doing something. But I can tell you from the inside that nothing is done. And then we also have those who would, what I would call, instrumentalize uh, the fight. So they would say, for example, we are going to support no matter what the Israeli government. I'm not talking about the state of Israel. I'm talking about the government. Because, and then they would use the anti-Semitic thing. But on the ground would actually be not so good for the Jewish community 
of their own countries. And Poland is a good example. Uh, or Hungary, big friend of Israel, apparently. But are they good for the Jewish community in Hungary? This is something we can discuss around. So I think that the, this is the first distinction to make. Now, if we look at European institution, uh, because this is, first of all, it's another level. It was built very, um, like many years after the end of the war. But still, we can consider that it was built on the ashes of the Holocaust. And this is a very uh, hard picture that is, but it actually says a lot. And the European Union, to my perspective, is receptive, one. And second, is implementing, and especially, especially this commission. So this board of governors, if I can call it like this, um, is really implementing a lot. We saw the publication of a EU strategy on combating anti-Semitism and fostering Jewish life, but also they are creating positions and there are people that their work within EU institution is to fight anti-Semitism and they are taking concrete actions. And for example, the fact that we are now partners of the European Union and we do receive also funding is also um, a proof that they are committed to act and they in, into the implementation, we can see that they are acting. However, this won't be enough. Because if you want to have a long-lasting effect, you have to make sure that this is inscripted in the schools, school uh, teachings. And these are still national competences. And for this, we rely on the states. And that's why the amazing thing with the EU strategy on combating anti-Semitism and fostering Jewish life is that the idea is that every member state of the EU would, would adopt a strategy and appoint a coordinator, which would actually make this fight much easier, even if it would still be very hard. And to this date, I think 15 countries out of 27 adopted a strategy, which is quite, which is quite amazing. And I really hope to see... Um, the others adopting. And a last point about the strategy, which is very important also for us Jewish communities, is that the fight against anti-Semitism was attached to the fostering Jewish life part. Because fighting against evil is, is good, but if there are no Jews to defend, it doesn't make any sense. So the EU also commits to preserve and foster Jewish heritage and the Jewish communities here, which is, we don't measure it so often, but it's quite, it's quite amazing. And actually, there are not so many communities that uh, have this support. Emily, uh, we know that young people spend more time online than any other age group. Um, you are the targets of much of the online hatred circulating out there as an organization and as Jewish people. How is EUJS addressing the online challenge head on? That's a great question to ask us. Well, I will start with the most obvious answer from our end, which is the fact that we are suing Twitter. Um, in January, actually, we announced that we are suing Twitter in Germany uh, on the basis of incitement of the people. Um, the case is based on six tweets that were reported by EUJS, um, and Twitter failed to remove them despite their terms and conditions. And as such, we are suing them for also breaching their own terms and conditions. 
because of exactly what you said. We see that young people are, you know, we use social media way more than any other generation. And as such, we are also facing online hate and online anti-Semitism at a disproportionate rate. And this cannot go on. The laws that are governing our everyday life in the physical space should be transferable to the online sphere the same way. If you can't deny the Shoah in Germany on the street, then you shouldn't be able to deny the Shoah online either, um, which is why we are also suing Twitter. So that's one of the main avenues that we've chosen. But also, this is a very difficult decision to make. Like, it's not, not every organization can decide to take a major social media platform to court. Um, it's a very burdensome and long process, but hopefully justice will prevail in the long term. Another way is that we, we are often in discussion with social media platforms. For example, Meta, we have Zoom calls with them once in a while where they update us about their newest terms. Um, and they update us about how they are trying to combat online anti-Semitism and online disinformation. Um, and we also have very strong allies who also find this issue um, a leading cause of problem. For example, in the European Commission, under the portfolio of Vera Urova, who was a commissioner for transparency, her under her, her portfolio falls also combating disinformation. And in Europe, they passed the Digital Services Act, which exactly tries to do that to combat online disinformation, to curtail it, to have fact checkers, trained fact checkers who monitor the situation online. It's important that we also kind of have people who are trained about anti-Semitism, for example. So that's something that we are still trying to push for. Um, but the EU is also seeing that this is a big, big issue. And um, how do you how do you train? Because you've got a lot of territory to cover the geographic uh, territory um, for sure. What is it that you bring? Do you have seminars? Do you, do you go to uh, to Poland? Do you go to, to Scandinavia? Are you in the Baltic states? Does everybody come to Brussels? How does that work? We do so much. <laughs> um, I'll start and maybe Apan can fill in the gaps if I miss something. So we cater to different audiences and different seminars also have different purposes. For example, one of our main political seminars, we just had it last week, it's the EU Activism Seminar. That one took place in Brussels. We had 26 participants from 15 countries. They came to us, basically. And the goal of the seminar is to bring the EU closer to them and to also provide a platform to them to raise their issues and concerns to the EU and to MEPs. For example, we also met with the Vera Jourova, Vice President of the European Commission, and also Margarita Skinas, who is also another Vice President of the Commission. And these are leading figures also in the fight on uh, online disinformation, but also anti-Semitism. So that's one of our main political programs. We also have a UN ambassadors program where we take participants to Geneva, because as you correctly said, we have um, the ability to speak at the Human Rights Council. We often provide this opportunity to our participants or to other activists, depending on the issue that is being discussed at the Human Rights Council, to raise their own opinion, to raise their concerns and to talk about the items, the agenda items. Um, then for the positive agenda items that we do, for example, Summer You, what Eitan mentioned briefly, um, it's one of EUJS's flagship programs. It is a week long seminar that takes place in a different country each year. We bring about 250 to 300 participants from around the 36 countries for a week of learning, engaging, also partying and having fun, but also to connect, to network, to build coalitions, to plan for the future, to pray together because we have Shabbat um, over that week also. 
and to exchange and to just be Jewish however they want to be Jewish. So that's one of our big events. Um, what else? This year we also did a Conspiracies and Minority Seminar where we brought about 25-ish participants, I believe, or maybe even more, to Riga, also a different location, not an everyday location, to learn about the different conspiracy theories. We invited partners to also provide presentations, experts, and it was a great seminar. It was a great success as well. And then what else? We also do more focused on our unions. For example, we have union accelerators, where the idea is that we bring together three or four of our member unions who face similar issues within their domestic countries. So for example, if they're having trouble finding people, they're finding trouble, they have trouble fundraising, we bring them together and we provide them intensive training on how to tackle that issue. Uh, For example, the next one will be in Croatia. It sounds really that, first of all, the agenda is clearly a a very broad one and specific at the same time. Um, but it sounds like the networking piece of this, which is so important uh, for young Jews. I mean, there aren't a lot of us to begin with. Um, and yet there are so many things that that bring us together in our common agenda, our common history. And it, it seems that being able to meet in a certain place and to come from all over Europe uh, on these issues, whatever they are, um, is is really extremely important. Um, I have one more question, Eitan. We've spoken a lot about combating anti-Semitism and issues affecting Jews online and on the European continent, which really does uh, command our attention. But now let's pivot a bit to your efforts in fostering Jewish life and culture. Uh, how does EUJS promote a positive agenda and has the recent shift in the European geopolitical landscape affected the organization's outlook and its activities. I would think that living and studying uh, in Europe with that very rich history, that long history of Jewish life in in Europe uh, would really uh, present many opportunities uh, for cultural activities. So how does, how does all of that fit in? So Actually, I would like to take a step back. And if we look at the Jewish history of Europe, um, we see throughout history and throughout the continent very big ups and very, very big downs. Uh, for example, the Holocaust being the, the most down. Uh, however, since they arrived, the Jews have been in Europe. And they always have been Jews. And when you look, for example, at the history of the Jewish Jewish presence in Spain and Portugal, it might be uh, some of very big downs. But then you recently have some laws allowing uh, descents of uh, those Jews um, able to have passports, uh, which can be considered as a... Uh, this is my, my personal analysis. And our work as UGS is to uh, make sure that when we are in the up, we take everything we can in order to uh, offer, uh, especially when we are in the down, uh, support. So I will not repeat what Emily said about some university, about union accelerators, even though uh, especially union accelerator is a way for us not only to uh, help unions finding I don't know, money or people, but also making sure that these organizations will be independent and strong and ultimately will make the Jewish community stronger. 
so that's really why we are fighting for. We are fighting for Jewish continuity. Uh, we are here to stay. We will not uh, go anywhere. And we are also trying to raise awareness uh, through different uh, things that are also looking towards the outside of the community. And the first thing I'm thinking of is our magazine, which is The Bridge. Uh, you might have received a copy. Uh, and it's, it's actually a collection of articles from young Jews over Europe that uh, gives kind of a picture of the sense of the young Jewish uh, community in Europe at a certain moment. We are also producing uh, toolkits uh, and guides for non-Jewish organizations and uh, decision makers on how to work with Jews in the sense of how to help them fighting anti-Semitism because we believe that non-Jews, like the EU is doing, should also take this battle on them. We are also trying to publish some uh, other documents, like, for example, we are working at the moment on Jewish contributions to, the, to Europe and a history of uh, famous or less famous figures that contributed in one way or another to uh, European history or the European Union itself, uh, which is very important. Because if you want to foster Jewish life, it's not only in the present, but it's also in the future. We have to always look towards the future, but also be able to look towards the past and see what happened and what we can learn from the past. It's always a challenge. Every time we want to take this mission on us, we ask ourselves, what is the best way? What should we do? What would our parents would have done and what should we do for our children to make sure that they will be here and actually this jewish question because i will call it um a question that is linked to our judaism is very important in the sense when you have russia invading ukraine then you have to be on the right side of history and you but you also have to remember that we have some folks out there in russia and we have also to protect them because they are part of our community. They're, they are part of our society. So these are challenges that we are trying to tackle the best way possible. I still personally believe that the best way is to bring people together, to foster exchange. And by bringing people, it's not only Jews, but also non-Jews, and to share. Being rich is not about how much you have, but how much you can give. And this is really what I'm trying to implement here with the team and with the board is come and see our community and to tell our communities everywhere in Europe, go outside of the community and talk and uh, create links and explain what it is to be a Jew. Because sometimes when I hear Israelis or sometimes Americans, it's like, oh, but Europe, anti-Semitism, oi, oi, oi. It's not only this. We have much more to offer than anti-Semitism. We have crazy good history, crazy good food, by the way, also. And uh, like philosophers, uh, I don't know, pol politicians, uh, the first ever president of the European Parliament was a Holocaust survivor. It also says a lot. So raising awareness and putting the light on, on those things is also part of fostering Jewish life, giving a voice to the people with the support of the decision makers, is also uh, a part of it. Well, Emily and Eitan, we really appreciate your being here, taking us inside the world of European Jewry from your perspective. 
it is not an everyday occurrence that we get to hear from people in Europe, especially young people, about their lived experiences and about the Jewish reality on the ground. And really, we salute you and uh, EUJS for the work that it does in advancing Jewish continuity, raising awareness, uh, Eitan, as you've just said, fighting anti-Semitism, uh, advocating for, for Israel. Um, it's a long agenda shared by all of us, regardless of where we live. Uh, but Europe is is such uh, an important place in our past, in our present, in our future, that uh, really what you do is, is, is truly greatly appreciated. And we appreciate uh, you both taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Well, if you're looking for more of our programming, visit our website, thenebrit.org, to listen to all of our conversations, podcasts, and live interviews. Our thanks again to Eitan Bergman and Emily Bowman of EUJS for joining me today. And as always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear and you're in a podcast app already, tap the subscribe button to follow us. You can also listen to the show via the B'nai B'rith website. For my guests, Emily Bowman and Eitan Bergman and B'nai B'rith, I'm your host, Dan Mariashin. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>